You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So this morning, the text we're going to be in is 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 5. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. If you do not have one, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you do not own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that Bible with you today as a gift from us. If you guys are able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 5. This is God's word. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's good to see you. Welcome to Providence. Uh, My name is Eric. If you don't know me, I'm a member here. Glad to be with you. Uh, and like Jenna mentioned, we're going to be closing out our series in First Peter uh, today. So awesome. Um, I was going to try to give kind of a summary of what we've covered so far in First Peter, but uh, it was kind of a little bit of a challenge uh, last service. But we do have a podcast that's coming out soon or may already be out. You may have listened to it. I'm not sure exactly, but it kind of does give a summary, answers some harder questions of Peter, gives a summary of kind of what we've been talking about and some takeaways from First Peter. So you can check that out for a full summary. Um, but today, uh, what I want to discuss here in First Peter is there are four dangers and a promise that I want to go over here at the end of chapter 5. So there's four dangers and a promise. And what I mean by dangers is I mean that there are real dangers in the Christian life that the Bible uh, repeatedly warns us about. Uh, and so... I'm not at all advocating that we don't have a God who's in control and has got us, is going to see us to the end. But there are real dangers in the Christian life that we must be aware of uh, and that we we must be uh, willing to look at the New Testament and say, how does it tell us to fight these things and to, you know, kind of navigate these dangers. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, four dangers and a promise. Um, But the point is, is that uh, I think we could admit uh, to some degree, to some level, especially probably being in the American culture uh, and in the South, on top of that, that our Christianity tends to come with uh, somewhat of a passivity, maybe a, an uh, ignorance of some of these dangers, or we kind of live life. Life is pretty chill for us. I'm not saying you don't have bad things or life may not be crazy, but what I mean is that uh, we tend to just kind of roll through our Christian life a little bit, kind of passive sometimes with uh, some of these warnings. And um, I think that's an important thing to address as we go. Uh, I was kind of reminded of danger. So I, I went to Colorado recently 
Um, and if you guys don't know, I have uh, chronic Lyme's disease. And so uh, and basically mine particularly affects like my nervous system. My wife and I like to joke about this a lot because of what happens. I'm about to explain in a second. And we don't joke that I have Lyme's disease. That is not cool. But uh, we joke about what happens. So because it affects my nervous system, your nervous system, you know, controls your fight or flight instinct. And so sometimes I'll get startled for whatever reason. It could be, you know, so I get cut off in traffic or, you know, my kids just like to scream at random, you know, for no reason or something happens, right? And sometimes when I get startled, my body will start to freak out. And I don't have a way of like telling my body, you're not in danger, it's okay. And so I'll get like this tunnel vision. I can kind of start hearing and feeling my heartbeat. Kind of feels like I'm gonna pass out a little bit. I get weak. It's kind of this weird moment and then it goes away and it's fine, you know. Uh, but I remember we were in Colorado and we went to, uh, if you've ever been to Colorado Springs, they have this place called Garden of the Gods. Uh, beside that, they have this other cool park that's like you can go and climb on rocks, climb little mountains and, and do so. It's fun. And so we were there with the boys and we're uh, walking kind of on this edge. I didn't really realize that there was like a major cliff like right there where we were walking, but it was like three or four stories down on the other side to just, you know, jagged rock, you know. So it was kind of a, and there's no ropes, there's no warning signs or nothing like that. You're just in the wilderness having fun. And my, my youngest son, Killian, is a little bit wild. And so we kind of realized almost, not, not too late, obviously, but, we, you know, we kind of realized that like, you know, my, our kids could just like, take a kick and fall off this thing, you know what I mean? Like, it's super easy. And so I remember this moment of fear and terror where I kind of just froze for a second, trying to feel out my body, what was happening. But then we kind of said, okay, we're going to stay on this side of things, right? Um, But the point was that in an instant, it went from there's definitely no danger at all, I'm just chill, to all of a sudden there's terrible danger, right? Uh, And we don't want our Christian lives to be that way. We want to understand, hey, there is danger. We know where it's at. And because the Bible is awesome, it's given us everything we need to know to to be able to fight this and to counteract the danger of fuel and survive through it. So it's important. And so I, I want to pray in light of that. I just want to pray that God would help us during this time uh, and that we would get through this in a timely manner. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to get in this word. So let's pray together. Father, we uh, love you and we thank you so much for your word and for this time together as your body, your church. And uh God, I, I pray for a few things. God, I pray that um, as we look at these dangers, uh, one, God, we know that we're not supposed to be a scared, worried, anxious people, but we have a God who's bigger than all of our fears and worries, and we trust you, God, we do. But God, I also don't want us to be neglectful to the realities of what's happening. It's easy to ignore them because it's easier. But God, we have an enemy that hates us, hates our families, hates the church, God, we have real dangers for our soul. Um, and God, we, we long to be faithful and alert and ready for them and not passive when they come. And so God, would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to receive from your word today, to be changed by your word today. And God, would you help us to be humbled by your word and not proud in ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start by defining pride and humility because this, these words are going to be the framework in which we discuss these dangers and a promise. And so um, I, I grabbed a quote from Andrew Murray. He wrote a book called Humility, and it's a great book. You should check it out. Andrew Murray is an awesome writer. Um, and he said this. He said, humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. And so pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and evil. And so what Andrew Murray is pointing out here is that uh, if you were to sum up, and I think it's a great definition, to sum up what it means to be humble, um, it's not simply that you are like 
you know, you're really good at like self-abasement and you're good at putting yourself down. That's not what humility means at all. But rather, humility is this um, dependence upon God for all you need, all you are, and all you have. And it's that dependence that drives this uh, self-forgetfulness, this God-exaltation that's so beautiful about humility. And in the reverse, pride would be a dependence on self, which leads inevitably to self-exaltation, right? And I love that he points out that humility is basically the, the fountainhead of where all virtue flows from. Uh, and, and, then, and then pride would be pretty much the fountainhead from where all sin comes from, right? If you look at the fall of Satan and the one-third of the angels that went with him, it was a pride issue, right? If you look at Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, it was a pride issue that began the first disobedience. It was this, I'm going to make myself like God, right? And so pride's a big issue, and it's going to kind of evolve our dangers today, but I hope that's kind of a helpful definition, and we'll clarify as we continue on. So uh, let's hop right into it. The first danger, and we're going to get some dangers, and Peter's going to give us some helpful actions to counteract these things, and then eventually a promise to um, uphold us. And, and, and so the first one is that pride causes division in the church. So well, we preached last week on verses 1 through 4, talked about the responsibility of the elders to humbly and beautifully uh, and courageously um, serve the people of God in such a way that's not out for selfish gain, but rather the good of the people and the glory of God. And, and, and Cord did a good job at explaining what that means. And so uh, as we fade into verse 5 here, keeping the same theme, here's what Peter says. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so uh, just as the elders ought to be selfless and not, not after self-gain, but rather in humility, seeking to serve and love the people, in the same way, Peter says, and then you who are younger, you, you should also um, be subject to the elders. Listen to the elders. Submit to their wisdom. Now, you can interpret this one of two ways. Some people would say, oh, well, it's just kind of like a younger means, whoever's kind of subordinate to the elders. But I think the other way, which is that maybe Peter has got some insight to young people, and so he's trying to kind of address this in the church, and I think it's helpful. Now, I don't mean that it means older people don't have to submit to the elders. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that, um, uh, well, we'll get into it. But here, here's the point. Here's what he's saying. He's saying young people seem to have, I think, a tendency to be really zealous and really wild, to be really passionate and really stupid. And you can kind of fill in the blank with whatever you want to fill it in. And I'll let you draw the line of where young ends and old begins. I'm not going to put that on anyone, okay? You can judge that for yourself. But the point is that I think young people in the church, with their zeal, with their passion, with their energy, are an absolute essential and important gift to the body of Christ and could drive the church in many ways into awesome deeds and great things. But I think also in us young people, there's a, a tendency to feel wise when we're not wise, to feel like we have the answers when we don't have the answers, right? And so there's this tendency to be a little bit wild and not subject to the elders and, and kind of a little crazy. And I think that if uh, us as young people could say, okay, we need to submit to the leadership of the elders because this passion and this zeal that is brought to the table is awesome when it is directed by loving care and wisdom from the elders. It's an amazing thing. I think it's what Peter's getting at. But here's the deal. Um, he's going to say, not just young people, but now all of you, to clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. So 
Here's what I think Peter is getting at in this first little station, and why I call this a danger. Because what happens with pride is pride creeps up, and it doesn't happen just in young people. Elders can be prideful. Anyone can be prideful. That's why he says all of you clothe yourselves in humility. But this pride can creep up that has a way of disunifying a church. It's amazing. As we're going to get later into the prowling lion, the devil, right? He loves this. He loves disunity in the church. Why? Because if a church is disunified, there's nothing a church can do, right, against the kingdom of darkness. And I would say here's what Peter's getting at. The suffering that comes into the church through pride is far more dangerous than the suffering that comes from without of the church through persecution. This is important. The suffering that comes to the church through sinful pride in the people, among the people, among the elders, is far worse for the church than the suffering from without. So it's one thing to be nervous about, you know, without of the church, what attacks might come, you know. But from the inside, it's far worse. There's pride is evil, right? This self-exaltation, this desire to be exalted above other people, this desire to be made much of in this life is devastating for the church. It disunifies the church. It ruins the church. And so whether you're prideful because of the position you have as an elder or you're prideful because of an opinion you have, uh, whatever it may be in the middle, right, it's this disunifying pride, this self-exaltation that can ruin a church. And so Peter warns against this and says, the remedy is all of you clothe yourselves in humility. Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So you got to ask the question, what does it mean to clothe yourself in humility? Why does he use this? Uh, there's a lot of ideas floating around about what that means. Some of them get really technical. I, I'm going to just take the non-technical route and just say, I think that clothing, not only in biblical times, but even in our time, is a way to kind of establish yourself and display kind of who you are, your prestige, right? Um, and so, uh, and I get that from James too. He basically talks about like, you know, them basically giving, uh, basically, uh, I can't think of the word. It's going blank right now. Someone might be able to help me. But anyways, he basically give like, uh, <laughs> losing it right now, give like exaltation to someone basically, okay? You're showing partiality. That's the word, partiality. Write that down, okay? Uh, but he says you're basically showing partiality to people. So if this guy comes in with fancy gold rings and he's got fancy clothing on, you say, oh, come over here and sit down in this seat. That way you can get, you know, come to the front and come sit here. Uh, not saying anything against you in the front, but he says, come over here, you know, and then some other guy walks in in shabby clothing and you say, oh, sit over there or get in the back or, you know, we got a, we got a spillover room. There's not enough room in here, right? And so basically what he's saying, you're showing partiality. This is wrong. But the point is that from that analogy, we get that, um, you know, there's a way you could display about who you are, about what you wear, right? What you put on. And so Peter says, if there's going to be a uniform that we put on, not like a cult where we all wear the same thing to church, but there's going to be a uniform that we wear, let it be humility. If we're going to display something about ourselves and the power of the gospel and the glory of God, let it be the humility that we carry in ourselves. The willingness to, to lower ourselves and empty ourselves and take the form of a servant. Let that be what we wear. Let that be what makes us honorable and proud. Let us outdo one another in showing honor. So where pride divides the church, humility unifies the church in a unique way. This is awesome. Number two. Uh, pride puts God at opposition to us. I don't want to gloss over this because this is an intense portion of Scripture. But we just read, it says, clothe yourselves, all of you, in humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want you to think about this. The God of the universe, the God who created all things, who destroys nations at the snap of his hand. If you are proud, that same God is opposed to you. 
And if that same God is opposed to you, who could save you? It's a good question to ask, right? God hates pride. He opposes it with all of his being. So you might be asking, well, that's a little extreme, all right? It's because you want to exalt yourself or you're prideful. I mean, why does God hate it? Seems seems intense. Well, uh, C.J. Mahaney, uh, he wrote also a book on humility, and he says this about it. He says, pride takes innumerable forms, but has only one end, and that's self-glorification. That's the motive and ultimate purpose of pride, to rob God of legitimate glory and to pursue self-glorification, contending for supremacy with him. The proud person seeks to glorify himself and not God, thereby attempting in effect to deprive God of something only he is worthy to receive. No wonder God opposes pride. No wonder he hates pride. Let that truth sink into your thinking. Now, that's important. What he's trying to highlight is the same thing that Romans 1 highlights, which is that it is gross sin to try, you can't do it obviously because God is all glorious, to, to steal legitimate glory from God to put yourself on a pedestal and glorify yourself, right? It's evil. It's wrong. God is glorious. He should be rejoiced in for that glory. It should humble us, but rather pride seeks to rob that glory from God and to glorify oneself. So where pride causes God's opposition, humility causes God to give us grace. So as we walk in humility, God gives grace to the humble. Now you might ask, well, isn't that works-based righteousness? And I would say, no. One, you don't have the ability to be humble apart from God's grace, so that's clear, right? You're not saved by anything that we can do, but rather God gives humility. And humility precedes this, this, this grace, right? It's like this humility, the best way I can describe it is humility positions us to receive grace, right? No one's going to come to the gospel and believe in Jesus without humility, right? But humility puts us in the position to receive grace upon grace forever and ever from the God of all grace. And that's amazing. It's huge. And so um, that's what humility does for us. So instead of us fighting in our pride to rob this and God opposing us, humility gives us grace. And it's a gracious thing from God. Um, number three. Pride robs our strength to fight anxieties. It's the third danger. Pride robs our strength to fight anxieties. I want you to think of the context for a second of 1 Peter, okay? 1 Peter is writing to believers that are experiencing some intense suffering. Something, I, I'm not belittling your suffering, but I would venture to say maybe we haven't experienced quite yet or maybe ever will. But some of the people Peter's writing to are like legitimately facing untimely deaths to be mauled by lions. Like he's, he's writing to a church that is being uh, destroyed by persecution and marginalization and suffering. And Peter sees this coming on the horizon. So he's looking at these people that are suffering under the hand of emperors and evil people. And he says, don't let pride rob you of strength. This is important. So let, let's read just for the context, verse 6 and 7 here as we talk about it. Um, so he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, this is important. So he says, once again, humble yourselves, and he kind of used the analogy this time, under the mighty hand of God, representing God's strength, God's action, God's doing, so at the proper time he may exalt you, at, at, at the right moment God may exalt you. Now, this is an interesting part of the believer, okay? Because we're called to be humble and not self-exalting. But there is coming a day 
I call this the great flip of the world where the, uh, the Bible says the first will be last and the last will be first, right? Those who were debased and humiliated because of their humility and their willingness to be self-forgetful for the sake of God and the glory of his name and the good of other people will be exalted in all the earth in front of the whole world to see. And those who are proud, self-exalting, absorbed with themselves and their pride will be humbled in a way that is unbearable, right? This great flip-flop of things is going to happen. And so Peter says, just humble yourself under his mighty hand. And at the right time, sure, he'll exalt you. If there's places you need to be vindicated because you are in the right, don't worry, you'll be vindicated. If there's places where you need to be exalted in the glory of God, for the display of God's glory, it will happen in eternity, right? It's going to happen, but right now is not the proper time. And so how does this rob us of strength for, for, to fight our anxieties? Well, first of all, I want to say we're an anxious people. I think we all can admit that. We all pretty much talk about that openly. We tend to worry a lot. It's just kind of swimming in our culture. I mean, sometimes you just get around people. I mean, I feel it in our church. I feel it myself. I feel it in my family. I just, we're, we're riddled with anxiety for some reason. And I think our pride robs us. Our pride has a way of causing us to depend on ourselves and not the God whose mighty hand has all the strength to fight anxiety. Does that make sense? So here's what pride says. Pride says, I got this. I can do it. I'm worried. I got a problem. I got to fix it. I'm on it, back out of my way, I'm going to make it happen. Some of you have that personality, so you know what I'm talking about, right? You're like, yes, that is me, baby. I'm going to fix the problems. Don't have money, I'm going to get money, right? Or whatever the anxiety might be. But humility says, God's got this. If I were to take the steering wheel right now, I'm going to wreck this for sure. And I have no way I can get that money, and I have no way I could fix this. And there's absolutely no way I'm going to solve this problem. But God can. So you're not just submitting yourself to nothing, to destruction, right? You're submitting yourself under the mighty hand of God who has all of the strength to quell your anxieties, has all of the strength to work all things out in your life for your good. If you deal with anxiety on how you can fix it, you're always gonna end up prideful and scared. See, pride has a way of projecting strength but being totally void of strength. And this is seen clearly in anxieties. I love it because God just uses these things to display what's going on here. And humility, though projecting weakness, is actually leaning on the only strength that exists, which is the mighty hand of God. Andrew Murray said this. He said, humility is simply the disposition which prepares the soul for living on trust. I love that. So there's disposition that humility brings that prepares us to live on trusting the Lord and not ourselves in our own strength, which is pride. So because we know that God cares for us, this is a precious promise, because we know that God cares for us, therefore we can submit ourselves under his mighty hand, take all of our baggage and anxieties and cast it upon him. Because he cares. He cares. He cares more about your family than you do. He cares more about you than you do. Believe it or not, right? He loves, he cares, he knows, right? He's experienced crazy anxiety, you know? Don't forget the picture of Jesus in the garden weeping and sweating drops of blood and asking God, if there's any way, take this away. (laughs) 
asking the Father that, and yet dealing with that anxiety. Jesus knows. He cares. And he has strength, a mighty hand. So where pride robs us of strength to fight anxieties, humility causes us to lean on the only strength to fight anxieties, which is God himself. Very important thing that we do. Number four. Number four danger is pride gives way to Satan's roarings. Now, I made that word up. You won't find roarings in the dictionary yet. I wrote a letter. Okay, just kidding. But uh, I couldn't think of another way to say it. And, you know, you know how it goes. Anyways, so pride gives way to Satan's roarings. Let's read verse 8 and 9 together. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is an encouraging text and some scary text. So Satan is described as a roaring, prowling lion seeking someone whom he might devour. And I just want to say, Satan is real. He really hates you really hates your family, really hates your church. It's really dangerous. There's a legitimate danger or the Bible wouldn't give us warnings. It's not just playing with us to you know, keep us on edge and make us scared, right? There's legitimate warnings about what Satan does here. Now, if you've read the book of Job, uh, you understand that obviously God's in control, right? Satan literally has to go to God and ask permission to do something, right? So, so nothing happens to you. Uh, apart from God's gracious will that he's working all things out for your good. But nonetheless, there is real danger with Satan. And he's projected as a a lion that is roaring. And I want to address maybe why that is. So why is he roaring and not eating? This is a good question, okay? If he's a lion, right? He sees us as sheep, that's food. All right, baby, that is mealtime. So why is he roaring at the flock and not eating? What's going on there? Maybe the obvious answer would be, oh, because God's not letting him. But another answer would be that Satan longs to intimidate us and scare us away from believing the truths of God. This works out in a few different ways, right? This works out, one, as individuals, belief in the promises of God. This also works out as the lion around the flock, right, of God roaring and trying to isolate the sheep and separate the sheep so that he may devour and so remember, this is in the context of the church and what's going on here. And so this isn't just an individual thing, but it's kind of both and with the church and the individual. But he's roaring, and he would love for you to not believe in the gospel, to believe the words of God, the promises held out to you that are yours. Satan can isolate you from those things. He can devour you. So how is he roaring? Well, I think the context of Verse 8 and 9 is clear. Here's what he says. So let's just go through it one more time. So you're like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him from your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So this suffering that's happening to the believers as Christians, this suffering is what Satan is using to roar very loudly, right? You got to think about this, man. Think about the people he's writing to. They're facing death. They're facing persecution, the loss of things, the loss of people, right? There's all this stuff crowding around them. Like, man, I mean, some of them have to be asking, what's God doing? Is he real, right? Is this really worth being a part of? And I'm sure there was a lot of isolation going on. Peter sees this and says, he's roaring like a lion, but he can't touch you. He's roaring to to devour you. He's roaring to separate you. He's roaring 
to black out the truths that you know. Resist him. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that your brothers around the world are experiencing the same thing, right? You're not alone in the suffering. It's just nonsense to believe that. And so how do we fight these dangers? Well, we, we resist him. And how do we resist him? Firm in our faith. Look, Peter does not call us to passivity here, but action. I just want to ask the question, like, do you know how Satan is uh, and demons are, are attacking your family? Or do you think about that stuff? Are you aware of what's going on in the souls of your kids and your spouse and, and, and what's happening? We've got to be watchful. Peter says, be, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Think about these things, man. And then when you see this roaring, resist him firm in your faith. So we resist the roarings of Satan by the promises of God. It's faith. Look, if you want to think of it this way, the bedrock of pride is a lack of belief in the promises of God. That's what it is. And the bedrock of humility is faith. It's not just self-abasement, not even just self-forgiveness, but it's faith in the God who is almighty. It's faith in the God who promised that he would complete the good work that he started in this, right? It's faith in the God who said, don't worry, everything that happens to you, good or bad, it's for your good and my glory. That is the bedrock of humility. That is how we truly walk in humility. If we try to walk in humility by hating ourselves, we're going to be the most prideful people. Believe it or not, you can be one of the pridest people and just think the worst of yourself. You can think you're fat, stupid, whatever you want to name, right? And you can still be a super prideful person. Just this, it's like negative pride versus positive pride. But the point is this, that we've been given uh, the truth of God, the word of God, the promises of God to fight these things. And so here's this, and, and Court pointed this out to me after first service. And I saw it so important to mention, and I think it's really good. Um, and so what, what happens in this situation is Satan is intimidating. He's roaring. He's scary. We're sheep. He's a lion. We're, we're, we're worried, right? But what happens when we submit ourselves in humility to God and we see the mightiness of God, the real lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? Then we can see what little cat Satan really is, right? He's nothing. He's nothing compared to God, right? There's nothing he could do to us in that sense. And so it is in that in which we see the real lion, right? The strong lion, the mighty lion, the courageous lion that destroys the little cat named Satan. I think that was a really good point. So where pride gives way to Satan's roars, humility stands firm in faith and resists him. Okay, this is how that works. Now, I want to get to the promise that we see here held out to us. This is important. So this is verse 10 and 11. So we got the four dangers we mentioned of pride and, and how those work out and versus humility. And here's the promise. Let's read it together. I want to break it down for us. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This promise is awesome. I want, I want to break this down into sections. So after you have suffered a little while, what does that mean? I think this is important because... And if this is how you interpret it, that's fine. I'm not here to argue with you or beat you down. Um, But I think, uh, and there's a lot of people that that would kind of interpret things this way, but I think it's unhelpful. And here's what I mean, the interpretation. Some people would say, oh, what it means if you suffer for a little while means like, you know, don't worry, just hang on, have faith. Like in a few years, it's going to go away and God's going to bless you. Like don't worry about it, the blessing's coming, right? Um, 
And the problem with this interpretation of these things, the, you know, being restored, being confirmed, right, all these things that he promises he will do. If we think about those as promises for this life only, then we rob the strength of what's happening in 1 Peter, okay? You can't think of those as promises in this life. Those are eternal promises. Now, that doesn't mean we won't experience taste of them. I mean, we will definitely experience taste of being established and confirmed and restored and strengthened by the God of the Bible. That will happen. I don't want this mentality that's like, you know, your life's going to be miserable always, you know, just enjoy it, baby. You know, that's like, that's like Ecclesiastes kind of stuff. It's not what I'm saying here. What I am saying is that if you look at that simply and mostly as a promise for this life, you will be gravely disappointed in the Bible and in God. Gravely. This is the heart of the prosperity gospel, right? The prosperity gospel says, I want my blessing now, right? And I'm going to get it now. It's going to be awesome. But that's not how it works, right? Remember the context of 1 Peter. He's looking at people ready to be thrown to lions, looking at people potentially going to be killed at a young age for what they believe. And you think he's saying, oh, don't worry. It's not going to happen. No. He's saying there is hope that goes beyond the grave that we have to have firm in our hearts to live this life as a Christian. Now, I've heard it said this way. Uh, It may have been, I think it was John Piper. Could be wrong. It was a women's conference for the Gospel Coalition. No, I was not there at the women's conference, okay? Don't you think things are getting weird, okay? I just came across it on YouTube. Uh, But he says this about 1 Peter. He says, if you look at the the life, 1 Peter, not 1 Peter, calls you to live in this book, it makes zero sense without understanding this hopeful, eternal promise right here. Zero sense. Without this promise, you cannot even fathom why someone would live like Peter's calling you to live, right? But with this promise and its eternal hope, we have hope. That, that, that's why Peter says, look, you got to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Why does he say that? Because these people were not in a hopeful situation, yet were filled with hope that one day God would restore them and confirm them and strengthen them and establish them, right? This is what sets the people of God apart. It's, it's not simply that we're just a righteous people and know how to act and behave and we just got things going on. Yeah, that might be an outworking of the Holy Spirit in you, but that's not what sets you apart. What sets you apart is that you have a hope that is unbelievably true. You have a hope that says, I don't care what I'm going through, whether you feed me the lions or I stub my toe, eternity is mine. It's coming. It's for me. God has me. I have joy that even extends beyond the grave. So if my life doesn't work out the way I want it to, if I never get that job I was looking for, if I stay sickly till the day I die, if I miss out on all of these things, right? It doesn't matter what happens in my life, I have a hope. And things will be great in that hope. They will be amazing. They will be beyond belief and I'll be restored. So, Sorry for that tangent, but not sorry. That's important. So when he says, you suffer for a little while, that's what he means. Peter's saying, I can't guarantee how long it's going to last in this life. I can't guarantee that's going to lead to death or not. But I can guarantee that after we suffer for a little while, the God of all grace who's called you into his glory will himself do these things. And he's going to list out these promises that we're going to go over. So the foundation of this promise is 
the God of all grace, who's called you into his glory. He himself is going to do this. So if you're looking for a reason to believe this promise, here's the reason. God, who dispenses grace, who has all of it, and who has clearly called you into his glory, which is a humbling thing, but an amazing thing, right? It's not self-exaltation. It's exaltation with Christ, this glory. We have this promise, and we can believe it for all eternity. It doesn't mean God won't bless us in this life. It doesn't mean God can't heal us in this life. And we have tastes and glimpses of what eternity will be like. Those are encouraging and awesome. So the Bible says rejoice with those who are rejoicing. But it does mean that no matter what happens, our full realization is coming. So let's talk about this promise as we close out here. Um, There's four things mentioned. God's going to restore. He's going to confirm. He's going to strengthen. And he's going to establish you. Okay, there are four promises. And this is for the church and for the individual. And let me sum them up for us in the best way that I can. Restoration implies that everything that has been broken and disordered and flawed will be 100% renewed and put back into its proper place forever. This restoration will be unlike anything we have ever seen. So... Has suffering broken your peace? Has suffering broken your joy? Has suffering broken your body? Whatever suffering has damaged, whatever your own sin has damaged, will be restored. 100%, better than you've ever experienced it. I love this because we have never experienced a millisecond of our lives that was not tainted with sinful desires and motivations. You think about that for a second? You've never had a day or you were just doing the right thing for the right reasons in the name of Jesus. It's always tainted by your sin. And one day when you are restored to wholeness, you'll experience with that first breath into eternity the reality of not being motivated by anything sinful, but getting to enjoy everything. And it's the most glorious manner and it's the most glorious way, the way God intended it for it to be. And so that's what restoration means. Confirmation. Confirmation implies that the judge of the universe will look at us wretched sinners and he will say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Just like God the Father told Jesus when he was baptized. And you can insert daughter in there too. That's an all-encompassing. Okay. So, though you are a former wretched sinner, you will be confirmed as an everlasting daughter or son in the kingdom of God what validation and completion this will bring us, right? We will receive it in that moment. So has sin condemned you? Has Satan condemned you? You're his, and you will be confirmed his forever as his people. It's amazing. Strengthen. So strengthening implies that we are weak and frail, okay? We don't have strength ourselves, and the God of all grace will renew your strength. He will give your mind, your body, your soul, renewed energy that will never fade away, never fail. Better than any cup of coffee you ever had, I promise. So has sin and suffering made your soul tired? Has the battle to put to death the deeds of your body been exhausting? I know it has for me. It's been a losing battle since the day that I started. (laughs) Has it dragged you into utter weakness? Has your body been sickly and dying? Have you longed for you to be restored to health? It's going to happen, guys. God will give unending strength to those who trust in him. And then lastly, established. 
establishing applies the eternal nature of these promises. That we're not given that, and then if we mess up again, then well, that's start over, right? It's not how it works. But you will be established forever and ever and ever as God's people. Nothing and no one could ever take that away from you or attempt to take that away from you, right? We have that promise. Your status with God is eternal. In the eternity, our life and hope will never be shaky. It will never waver. It will never falter because of our sin or the sinfulness of the world. It will be steadfast forever. May God give us strength and faith to cling to these promises today. To him be the glory forever, the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's in control and all those things. So um, you guys can stand with me. I, I want to pray together. I want to sum this up. and I, I want to say that what Peter is doing in this text <clears throat> is, is Peter is simply trying to show us the rock-solid hope we have in God. He's trying to show us that at the bed of all these things, for your desire for humility, the glory of Christ and not yourself, at the root of all of these things is simple belief that God has got you. It's simple belief that God cares. It's simple belief that God will do these things. And without this hope, I'm telling you, there's going to come a time where pride is going to take root and we will exalt ourselves and we will try to fix it. And there's no assurance there. There's no peace there. There's no life there, right? So in humility, let us clothe ourselves as the church of Christ in humility, submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God and let him work things out. Amen. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us these precious and very great promises. Promises that will never fade away, will never end, will never be destroyed. So God, I have two things on my mind this morning. One is that for the believer in the room or online, in a mighty and powerful way, God, that you would establish them and confirm them and assure them in these promises. Would the joy of eternity with you be something that drives us to love people? Would it be something that drives us to not be afraid of the suffering, not be afraid when the lion roars? Because God, you are the mighty lion. You are the one in control. You are the one that has us by your grace alone. And in that we can have confidence, not because we're good, but you're good, not because we're strong, but you're strong. So God, help us to walk in that humility that justifies what we believe that is in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, let us with all power and dignity and honor and joy invite others along with us to come be a part of this glory, this humility that brings us the deepest joy. And God, for those who don't believe, under the sound of my voice, I pray, God, in a, the unique way that only you can do, and by your grace alone, would you hold out these promises to them today? And by your power and might, would you give them faith and joy to believe, to cling to the God of strength so that all their fears, all their anxieties, all their worries, all their timidness, all their lack of joy, you fill in the blank, would be brought to nothing. 
and in place of it, your joy, your glory, the humility that you bring that exalts you and glories in you would be given to them in a powerful way. And so God, help us, we pray. Help us suffer well. Help us endure well. Help us hope well. And let Atascacita and beyond be so curious about the hope that's in us. And we pray this in Christ's name.